disability is something that impacts every single one of us because it is the one category of identity that every single human being on the planet can slip in and out of at any time. When I would bring it up, people would think, okay, this has nothing to do with me. And so I realized that there needs to be a different way of being able to talk about this issue. When Eddie Ndopu was a toddler in South Africa, he was diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy, a disorder that affects voluntary muscle movement. So even as a kid, he had to fight for rights that people without disabilities don't even think twice about. Now, at the age of 32, Ndopu is on a mission to reshape how the world thinks about what it means to be disabled. He holds a master's degree in public policy from the University of Oxford, and in 2019, he was tapped by the Secretary General of the United Nations to be an advocate for its sustainable development goals, which include ensuring access to education for all. Ndopu has made it his life's work to not only raise awareness about the issues affecting people with disabilities, but to completely reframe the way we all relate to disability on a truly global level. And just this month, he's released a memoir, Sipping Dom Perignon Through a Straw, Reimagining Success as a Disabled Achiever. In it, he writes from experience about how people with disabilities are often expected to achieve excellence in order to be treated with dignity. One of the things that struck me most about my conversation with Ndopu is his radical clarity about the value of human life. His work upends established assumptions about ability and excellence, and instead argues that our deepest vulnerabilities can actually be our greatest strengths. I'm Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. Eddie, I am so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So it's been 30 years since you were diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy at age two, right? Mm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what is something that you would tell a younger Eddie about the road ahead and what it means to live with a disability? Well, what I'd probably say, and this is maybe jarring to some people, but Disability has been the greatest offering and gift of my life because it has enabled me to develop an intimate relationship with my body and the relationship that I have had to cultivate with the recognition that I am getting weaker by the day has really enabled me to live with a sense of urgency. Hmm. And so possibility is always on the table the ability to live with intention and with urgency has really enabled me to accomplish my wildest dreams. The thing that has been labeled as a deficit, as a weakness, as a source of tragedy has actually been the foundation of an irrevocable sense of self. So I would go back and tell myself that I am enough and I am fine just the way I am, and that that is going to be where my superpower lies. That is beautiful. I think a lot of people need to hear that. I'm curious if you can tell us about how you came to that mindset, because Mm. I can imagine that that would have been a little bit of a journey, especially given 
the prejudice against disabled people. So can you tell us about the journey to get to that place where you see your disability as your superpower? Yeah. And, you know, Charlotte, I would even take it one step further and say that it's still a journey, even as a disabled adult. So I was saved really by the tenacity and the fearlessness of a single mother. Hmm. My mom betted on me before the world betted on me in the sense that she believed that I could attain a mainstream education. Hmm. So at the age of about six or seven, I remember my mom walking into our home. She had just had a long day of work. I was sitting on the linoleum floor with my head craned up, looking at the TV screen, and the TV was switched off. And I was just kind of staring at it like a zombie. And my mom was very concerned. It's just kind of like, baby, what's wrong? Like, are you okay? And I remember turning to her and looking her in the eye and saying, I want to be like Wonga, my younger brother. Mm. I want to go to school. And my mom kind of held my hand and she said, okay, all right, we'll make this happen. And remember, this is against the backdrop of a reality where there were no disabled kids in the classroom. You know, there's this horrifying statistic between 90 and 98% of children with disabilities across the developing world have never seen the inside of a classroom. Wow. And it's a grave injustice and it points to the ways in which people continue to be left behind. Mm -hmm. And so the mindset that I have was because I very early on had exposure to a sort of mainstream space where I could interact and interface with people sort of on equal terms. And so from the very beginning, I had always seen myself through a positive lens because I had that positive reinforcement from a mom who really wanted me to have every opportunity that my non-disabled counterparts had. So that's where I attribute that initial spark of thinking that I can carve out a life of meaning and a life of joy and wonder, regardless of disability. Mm -hmm. And I think that disability brings us closer to humanity in so many ways. I used to speak exclusively in terms of disability rights and using the language of disability, which is speaking through policy and legislation and the built environment. Now I talk about anti-ableism because ableism as a concept really refers to the ways in which we organize society. And it implicates everybody, right? Like whether you have a disability or not, ableism basically says that there's only one way of being, one way of being productive, one way of being valuable, one way of being beautiful, one way of being worthy. An anti-ableist framework basically says that there are a multiplicity of lived experiences. There's more than one way of showing up in the world. And all of that is valid. So let's back up for a second. You grew up in South Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about what you experienced growing up as a Black disabled man in South Africa in the 1990s? So I am part of a generation that's called the born freeze, that we were born free, that we came of age in the aftermath of the legal disestablishment of apartheid, right? And so 
being part of the born free generation means that we were the first beneficiaries of what it means to have access to equality, where we have access to inclusion. So this discourse of equality, this discourse of belonging, that we are all worthy, that was inculcated in me as a young person. And so, you know, you began to see through pop culture, like through TV, through music, these young African people who are, you know, bursting with creativity and energy and brilliance and wanting to live a life of meaning, all of that was everywhere. There was this energy and it was so palpable. And so I remember that, you know, integration in our schools was a big thing. And so that was the backdrop of my life in South Africa. How did the legacy of apartheid affect your mother's ability to get you a mainstream education? Was that a challenge that had to be overcome? It was. And, you know, Charlotte, my mom has often said, and it's only now that I'm adult that I'm able to really understand it properly, but my mom has always said that the greatest injustice of apartheid wasn't so much the structural oppression of Black and brown people, but it was sort of the suppression of our ability to dream with reckless possibility, Hmm. the deferred dreams. My mom would often talk about who she could have become had it not been for the system of apartheid. My mom was this talented, brilliant person. She could have been a tennis player. She could have been a model. She could have been anything that she had wanted to be. And so given the political changes that we were bearing witness to in South Africa, my mom, I think, realized that maybe my life could be different. And there was an insistence that, you know, I might not have had the opportunities that I could have had, but I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure that you're able to pursue your dreams, regardless of your disability. And so I think it created this fighting spirit, this conviction that my life was going to look different. And so it sort of opened up a space of possibility. Mm. And that's not to say that the challenges weren't hard, but I think it is that conviction that then enabled this sense of possibility. And one door started opening after the next. And then from there, I kind of took it. I ran with it. I was like, okay, all right, you opened that door and now I'm going to go ahead and see how many more barriers I'm able to break down. Can you remember the moment when you first advocated for yourself? And what was the context and what did you realize in that moment? I distinctly remember on my first day of school, I was supposed to be placed at the back of the classroom in the remedial version of the classroom. And it was just assumed, right, from day one that because of my disability, I would maybe have a hard time learning. So you're saying that people assumed that because you had a physical disability, you also had an intellectual disability. Yes, that was the assumption, right? Or that my ability to keep up with my classmates would be compromised. That was sort of the assumption. And so they're like, okay, Eddie, well, you'll be here at the back. Let us know if you need anything, you know. And very quickly, I remember I was able to do something that all my other classmates weren't able to do. I was able to like write my name. There was like first grade or something. And I remember my teacher sort of passing by and she's just like, oh, wow, I don't think you belong here. Like, come join us in the front. And that 
planted a seed. And in subsequent years, I began realizing that maybe I deserve a little bit more. But, you know, it is possible for me to thrive within this environment. And so my self-advocacy was about developing the vocabulary to be able to articulate my needs and my ambitions and my aspirations. And eventually, much later in my teenage years, I founded this letter writing campaign and I wrote to world leaders. And I basically said that I benefited from inclusive education. And I think it's unfair and unjust that young people like myself who haven't had the opportunities that I've had are not benefiting from inclusive education. And you need to open up educational opportunities for children with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And that catapulted me onto a bigger stage where I realized that I could do this. I could do this as a professional endeavor and advocate for people. More with disability rights advocate Eddie Ndopu when we come back. So why did you choose to frame this memoir specifically around your year at Oxford? Hmm. Because I think Oxford is the ultimate symbol of accomplishment. It's the ultimate accolade. When we think about Oxford, we think about excellence. We think about success. And I could have written a memoir that is very linear, very expected, overcoming the odds. And I could have had this fairy tale moment, right? How I got to Oxford. Right. But I wanted to start with what happens the day after the fairy tale. We don't really talk about that. Right. Like Oxford could have been the end of the book. You made it to Oxford, but instead you wanted to focus on the after. Right. And Charlotte, I did that intentionally because the honest truth is that the more barriers that I have been able to break down as a person with a disability, the more barriers have awaited me on the other side. And we don't talk about this, right? We don't talk about what it means when you scale the mountain and you think you've arrived at what is the summit or the peak, when in actual fact, that's just base camp of yet another mountain to climb. Mm -hmm. And I felt a lot of shame in admitting that. And I couldn't explain to people, how is it possible that success and accomplishment has not inoculated me against ableism? Like, how is that possible? Because I believed that if I just accomplished enough and I got all the accolades and I did everything perfectly, that I would be able to sidestep a lot of systemic inequalities, that I would be able to emerge on the other side and I'd be able to look people in the eye and say, if you just have enough grit, if you just have enough resilience, you can make it. And I realized that that is actually not true. That narrative doesn't hold. And so Oxford was supposed to be my greatest accomplishment. And when I got there, 
it ended up being one of the most heartbreaking experiences of my life. Wow. Why was that? Can you tell us about the moment when you realized, oh, wait, I thought I've arrived, but actually there are more mountains to climb? I think the realization happened on the first day, the first night, my very first night. And the reason why it was so difficult is because I got there and there were so many ways in which my needs weren't met, right? Like I need a 24-7 team in order to survive. I need help with feeding. I need help with dressing. I need help with every single aspect of daily living. And I couldn't bring a care aid with me from South Africa to Oxford because in the visa regime, there is no designated visa for a caregiver accompanying an international student with a disability. So there was a loophole. So very quickly, I needed to find a local care agency in the UK, which was ridiculously expensive. And I'd gone on a full scholarship Mm -hmm. and I'd fundraised additional funds to get to Oxford. And when I got there, (laughs) I was met with about like an $80,000 bill for the year. Oh my gosh. Right. In order to meet all of these costs that my scholarship couldn't cover. And so I fell through the cracks. By the end of my master's at Oxford, I had gone through 23 different care aids. Wow. And you can imagine if you put yourself in my situation, it is the most intimate and vulnerable relationship you can possibly have. And if there are 23 different strangers, that's a revolving door and they're coming in and out of your life over that time span. And you still have to keep it together. Like, what does that do to you? Yeah. And this is not so much about Oxford. I think Oxford in the book is sort of a metaphor for institutional life. Hmm. And the ways in which people with disabilities are set up for failure. Because we haven't created our institutions to truly embrace diversity beyond compliance. Compliance is sort of this tick box exercise, right? That if we have a ramp, if we have an accessible bathroom, if we have all of the things that signal inclusion and accessibility in a given space, then everything's okay. And I've said this time and time again, the first time I articulated what's problematic about that thinking was probably in the pages of Time magazine when I written an article a few years ago where I sort of said that there's a limit to compliance is a limit to accessibility. The bureaucracy isn't the answer. That what makes the space accessible isn't necessarily the installation of a ramp. Yes, it provides entry into a building, but what makes the space accessible? It's how we treat it. And so all of these experiences together, I think, made the experience so difficult. And I had to come to terms with the fact that like, okay, my success has not been able to save me from this situation. I'm very interested in this narrative that I think you describe really well of overcoming adversity to Mm. arrive on the other side where everything is great. And Mm. once you achieve X, Y, Z, whatever obstacles you've faced are over. And I think that that is a narrative that pervades all of our culture, not Uh just the way we talk about people with disabilities. But I'm curious how living with a disability has changed your perspective on that 
narrative in particular. You're absolutely right. And if we can just get there, right? So there's this belief that, okay, if I just get to the other side, so we know the journey is rough. We know that like, okay, something feels a bit off. I'm at the top of my game. I'm at the top of my field and I'm still mistreated. I'm still undermined. I'm still sort of side-eyed. And we've all had these experiences. And that's why I think this memoir is not just a disability memoir. I think it's universal because you're right. This is a story that we have told ourselves about success, this very linear arc. And it is problematic. And disability actually has enabled me to see just how problematic it is. It's given me a clearer lens. It's the clearest vantage point from which to view that problematic narrative. And in some ways, my work now, my advocacy, and certainly through this memoir, I call it my anti-grit memoir. Like I think grit is great, but grit on its own is not a corrective for systemic failures, right? And there has to be a more honest, truer, and nuanced story that we tell about success. And I think that there's something about the lived experience of disability that makes you confront precariousness constantly, Hmm. right? So even now, as I'm talking to you, there's a certain exposure to just precariousness that I encounter, both my body and the ways in which the world is just not designed with my lived experience in mind, where I never am able to get a break from that feeling of crisis that's always sort of looming in the background. And I just felt that I needed to get it off my chest and I needed to be able to talk about it because, you know, I'm often asked to give advice to young people with disabilities and I've sort of been held up as this exceptional person, right? And I think there are limits to exceptionalism, that exceptionalism cannot be a prerequisite for dignity. Hmm. It simply cannot. And unfortunately, I have lived my life because I needed to be exceptional. I needed to be absolutely extraordinary and perfect in order to receive dignity. And there is this narrative that individual achievement can somehow melt away these systemic barriers. And in some ways, I feel like what you're doing with this book and with your advocacy is showing all the ways that that's not true. Right. And also, there is an addiction. Once you start, right, once you start going down that exceptionalism as a prerequisite for everything road, it becomes addictive and you want more and more and more and more and it never is enough. Hmm. I'm at a point now where I'm trying to think about, like, what does healing look like outside of the accumulation of privilege. Hmm. And so in some ways, this is my first attempt. That's why the subtitle is Reimagining Success as a Disabled Achiever. I need to rethink my definition of success so that I can feel safe within my body. I can feel safe within my relationships so that I'm not using accolades and success as currency Hmm. for being able to live more meaningfully. So speaking of accolades and success, you were elected student body president at Oxford 
What was that day like when you learned that your fellow students at Oxford had elected you president of the student body? It was, the honest answer, it was frightening. Really? Yeah. Why? I was scared. It was frightening because I thought that if I became student body president, it would prove to the university that I was worth investing in, that I could be saved from my financial situation, that I'd be able to get additional funds and that my care bill would be taken care of and I would get what I need so that I could just have an experience that I know all my other classmates were having so that I could just find myself in the pub or in the library and just enjoying my life. And so I had used that. I thought, okay, if I became student body president, it's going to fix everything. And when I became student body president, I think I very quickly realized immediately that this is just a target on my back, Hmm. that what I've actually done has backfired a little bit. In what way? Well, the first thought that came to mind was, if I mess this up, it will immediately be attributed to the fact that I have a physical disability and that I was never really qualified for this role to begin with. Wow. I say that very honestly because I do think that we've all felt this way before where we know that we're not just an individual, but we somehow have become a representative for a whole community, even though we've never asked for that, right? But we find ourselves in this situation where we're like, oh, wait, now all of a sudden, like if I get this one thing wrong, then it's going to be like, well, we knew it. We gave this guy a chance. He couldn't mm-hmm. do it. He couldn't cope with it. And my opponent basically said that in his own manifesto. He's just like, you know, Eddie, we all love you. You're a great guy but this job needs somebody who's going to actually get it done. And I think what got me the votes was I'd thrown out my speech and I got to the front of the auditorium and there was only a handheld mic. And of course, I'm not able to use my hands and then there was no lapel mic. So one of my classmates got up and sat next to me and she held the mic to my mouth. And I said something like, let's address the elephant in the room. I know that I might not be able to hold this microphone, but I can certainly assure you that I am capable of being able to amplify your voice as my fellow classmates. Hmm. And I thought, that's a mic drop moment, if ever there was one. (laughs) And so I got the votes. But then immediately after, I think because of that context, I just kind of felt this pit in my stomach where I was just like, okay. All right, like now I need to step up to the plate. And nobody sort of knew behind the scenes what I was going through. Yeah. So what do you think people who don't have a physical disability don't understand about this issue? What do you think is misunderstood about accessing quality care? I think people sort of think about quality care in medicalized terms. Hmm in very clinical terms, in a very detached term, right? People sort of think a care aide is a care aide, a caregiver is a caregiver, but it's quite possibly one of the most intimate relationships that you can have with a human being. And I guess people don't understand how care is really the backbone 
of our society. Hmm. And this is not just within the realm of disability. I think about unpaid care work, right? And the caregiving that women all over the world do and that how that is not adequately acknowledged in terms of how our economies are meant to function. So there's so much of care that's invisible and that is minimized and that's diminished Mm -hmm. and that's not really taken seriously. And having access to care certainly makes my life possible. But if we just sort of reimagine care altogether, that care is so fundamental to our civilization, if we sort of take that approach to it, I think we by now would have reimagined healthcare itself from the ground up. That makes a lot of sense. And so as a UN advocate, what is the current international framework for disability rights? So the current framework for disability rights is a document that basically outlines the sort of fundamental rights and freedoms that people with disabilities around the world are entitled to, right? And this is everything from like employment to care, for example. And it's a brilliant document and, you know, sort of rests on the shoulders of like the Americans with Disabilities Act and remarkable visionary advocates, people like Judy Human, who paved the way mm-hmm. for so many of us to just sort of live the life that we live. And so I have great reverence for that document. However, the way that we think about disability inclusion, again, is really through this lens of compliance and reasonable accommodation. And reasonable accommodation is the policy language that gets used all over the world, right? So in the workplace, social services, we think about reasonable accommodation for people with disabilities. And I'm going to be honest with you that I have serious objections with the concept of reasonable accommodation. Hmm. Because I've always wondered, reasonable for whom? Because I've found myself many times feeling very unreasonable when I have insisted on the fullness and the totality of my humanity being affirmed. And I think there's something borderline dangerous about boiling down our existence to logistics because that's invariably what happens. Wow. There's a way in which we're all implicated in this thing. Right. Right. And I implicate myself in ableism. There are many ways in which I too perpetuate the myth of a kind of normal body, right? Perpetuate the myth that there's sort of like this very narrow way of being and moving through the world. And so that's the pivot. And it really, I think, comes out of a fundamental belief that if disabled people get free, then we all get free. Yeah. So I want to talk about the UN because you delivered a keynote address at the UN. Uh Can you tell me a little bit about what that preparation was like? And also, what was the most important thing that you wanted to get across in that speech? Well, I mean, it truly was the greatest honor of my life. And when I was told that I was the first wheelchair user ever in history to deliver this opening keynote, I 
immediately thought, wow, that is, on the one hand, it's a stunning achievement. But again, coming back to the problems around achievement, it's a little bit of an indictment as well. The fact that this hasn't happened before and, you know, bless all the people that made that possible, you know, because it hadn't happened before, they literally had to construct a ramp that took six people because the podium at the UN, that iconic green marble backdrop is quite high. And most heads of state who come to the podium to address the General Assembly stand and deliver remarks from the podium. And so it's way too high. And so they were like, okay, well, we need to construct something, right? And so it was a huge operation that involved countless meetings, hours of preparation. And I'm deeply grateful to everybody who made it possible. But I think it also says something, right? It clearly says something about how far we still need to go in the process. And so I think the most important thing that I wanted to get across to member states was that not only is it possible for the most marginalized segments of society not to be left behind, but it is also possible for us to be the leaders, right? Mm -hmm. To lead and to be in front of the line. Okay, well, Eddie, thank you so much for sharing your story. We've talked about your accomplishments and your book, but now we want to learn a little bit more about your everyday life in our final segment called The Last Time. It's a lighthearted, lightning round of questions, and you just answer with the first thing that comes to mind. So, when is the last time you went clubbing? Uh, Last year for my friend's birthday. Okay, when's the last time you dyed your hair? I went blonde, 2017. When is the last time you visited a museum? Ah, on 4th of July. Which museum did you go to? We went to the Statue of Liberty, which I've never been. And there's a museum there that sort of talks about the journey of migration. Hmm. And yeah, that that was pretty fascinating. When's the last time you called your mom? Yesterday. And when's the last time you gave a toast? Last week at the pre-launch celebration of my memoir. Wonderful. Um, Eddie, thank you so much for being here today. This was such an interesting conversation, and I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. Eddie Andopu's memoir is called Sipping Dom Perignon Through a Straw, and you can read an excerpt on time.com. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.